Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We have long looked in this series at the U.S. military's various ways of trying to remove the Seminoles to the Oklahoma Territory. We've talked about the Army's skirmishes, battles, campaigns, and the overall war. In all of these, the Seminoles have been side players. In this episode, Seminoles take center stage. We'll learn who the Seminole were. How did some Seminole who wanted to remove get out safely? How did some Seminole who chose to stay and fight stay in place safely? Jesse Marshall returns to tell us all about this. Jesse, autodidact, aficionado of all things Seminole Wars, examines where the Seminole came from, how they fought and resisted in the Seminole Wars. Jesse Marshall, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. This many episodes into the Seminole Wars series, one would think I knew the answer. Nevertheless, who were the Seminole? Or it may even be more appropriate to say, what were the Seminole? Yes, you see, the Seminole, most of them were affiliated at one time with the Creek Confederacy. The Creek Confederacy was a confederacy of tribes, really. And the Seminole Nation was essentially a similar confederacy of tribes. They did elect a head chief for national purposes, but the individual Seminole would have belonged to a, a town or a a band, as they were frequently called by the American Army. And we'd have the Seminole towns like the town at Chuckachatty near Brooksville. And that town would have had its own Miko or chief who would have conducted the business of it. And to all intents and purposes, from what Prince records in his diary are direct quotations from prisoners after they've been taken. And he asked them through his interpreter, who did this, who did that, where are the rest? And he doesn't record what they were doing on a national level. His prisoners are telling him that the Tallahassee's and the Chuckachatties have united, that the Miccosukees have gone over here, and that the Seminole proper have gone somewhere else. So it would be akin to a very specific breakdown among them. They were evidently very much recognized themselves as members of their own bands or towns. What did an escaped slave who'd been a Seminole prisoner have to say about the makeup of the Seminole Nation and its various tribes and bands? Samson Forrester, fascinating Florida historical character, he was present with Colonel Harney's Dragoon Detachment at the Caloosahatchee River in 1839 during the peace established by General Maycomb was broken. The Seminoles raided the sutler's store there and killed many of the dragoons. Harney himself barely escaped. They captured two of the Army's Negro guides, Sandy and Sampson. Sandy was executed, but Sampson was kept for almost two years in the Everglades until he made his escape back to the Army and again acted as an Army scout and guide. When he was released, he provided a narrative of the Seminole lifestyle in the Everglades during the war, which is the best primary document about the Seminole hiding in the Everglades from 1840 to 42, how they hunted their tactics in avoiding the troops, how they planted their crops in some of the islands, etc. Samson's narrative of the Seminoles in the Everglades during the years he was down there forms a very significant document, perhaps one of the more significant documents of the Seminole warfare in 1839 to 1841. And among his comments was that the Seminole didn't have a sort of unanimity other than that they were resisting white authority. In other words, the war itself brought them together. They worked together in a national way only insofar as they contended against military and naval forces of the United States. Otherwise, it would appear from his comment that they went about their business much as they had before the war with the individual bands or towns acting essentially independent of each other. At least within their band or tribe, these observations about actual seminal practices and how the tribes and bands are formed together in actual practice differs from the U.S. designation of convenience that there was an entire seminal people that needed to be removed. The term seminal was just a very general one. 
among the army to reference the Seminole Nation. And it would be similar to when we say a Georgian or a Virginian or a North Carolinian, but all are United States or Americans. In the 1820s, the U.S. government designated all the tribes in Florida as Seminole for convenience sake. Later, in the mid-1830s, did the various tribes unite under the term Seminole themselves for convenience sake as a means to resist the U.S. government's efforts of removal? Or was there something else going on here that the war may have hastened? A ethnogenesis, as Dr. Brent Wiseman says. I've read Dr. Weissman's Beads on a String and enjoyed it. I will just comment that from reading principally 19th century sources, George McCall was present at the Treaty of Moultrie Creek when that was hammered out in the early 1820s, and the U.S. government established a tribal reservation in Florida for all the Florida Indians, and McCall makes a comment that he literally witnessed the birth of the Seminole Nation at Moultrie Creek. In other words, the U.S. government formed what we call in the post-1822 period the Seminole Nation. Interestingly, according to McCall, the majority of those Seminole were actually Miccosukee, and there was contention between the Miccosukees and the Seminole proper because they were going to elect a head chief for the purposes of being a Seminole Nation, and they originally elected John Hicks, who was a Miccosukee, and later Micanope, who was the Seminole proper's hereditary chieftain, became the head chief by the Seminole Wars outbreak in 1835. So what was the U.S. government's official position? The U.S. government, from 1822 to 1835, they considered the Seminole united as a nation. The U.S. government considered that the signatures of the several chiefs at Payne's Creek and Fort Gibson, the removal treaties, that those bound the entire Seminole nation. One can then understand the various tribes' consternation, resentment, and resistance to such a designation. We may be guilty of assuming that they being chiefs had a, a leadership stake, that they had a leadership role something like a Greek hero. When we watch movies like Braveheart, you see almost a tribal leader in the character. Chuck Connors playing Geronimo. But a chief among the Creek and Seminole did not have any real authority over what their people did. Well, they had an authority, but what I'm saying is they were not authoritarian. As one gentleman said, in the 1820s, they're very democratic. We talk about democracy in America. We're not really that democratic, but the Creeks were described as being truly democratic because their chiefs don't have the sort of authority that one would assume they should have in what was called at the time a civilized society. The chiefs did hold significant power and one of the most important pieces of power, patronage. Sampson's narrative talks about their supply of ammunition, that the chiefs generally kept the powder, what powder they did have, and that the chiefs would sell a few shots worth of the powder to each warrior who wanted to go hunting with it for a hog, say. And if they were going to use the powder in war, if they were going to ambush or raid, then they would be given the powder for free. So the powder was considered product necessary to hoard for war purposes. Of course, they also in the Everglades preferred to use bow and arrow to hunt because it didn't make so much noise. When they fired their rifles when hunting down in the Everglades, the gunshot would reverberate off the water and make a greater noise than it would, say, in a closed forest. We know about call-ups for the regular army, about call-ups for volunteers or for the militia. How did the Seminole handle calling up their warrior for battle? If a warrior leader was decided upon war and the war leader would go outside of the town and he would fire his rifle in the air and he would call for a war party, there was evidently no compunction for the individual warriors to join a war party if they didn't want to. Contrast that with the United States where every American citizen was compelled by law and the Constitution to serve militarily when called, whether to repel invasion, enforce the laws, or to crush insurrections. And that would, of course, include Indian invasions outside of Indian reservations and so forth, as in Florida. You note that a chief or Miko might go outside and fire his rifle into the air as a call for warriors to join him. Where did he get the rifle from? One of the questions that I've received frequently at Seminole War Living History programs, people note that the Seminole reenactors are armed with rifles. The historic Seminoles are largely armed with firearms. People will inquire, where did the Seminoles get their guns? And sometimes they mean more than just where did they buy them or who gave them to them. The question was, in large measure, why were they allowed to have them? And I've gotten that question from more than one Canadian over time, where firearms are 
differently considered in Canada. Notice that the Indian tribes were members of what the Supreme Court defined as domestic dependent nations within the United States. And so they were largely armed. Not only that, but the U.S. government provided guns to the Indian tribes. Derringer made Indian rifles that the government purchased and distributed, especially to those tribesmen that immigrated to the West in the 1830s. In fact, there's reference that the Seminoles, parties of them being sent West during the Seminole War, were given their guns back after they left Florida. There's a interesting anecdote. One gentleman traveling by steamboat on the Mississippi mentions a flat carrying a number of these immigrants who fired a fusillade at a bear they found swimming in the water. And once the bear was killed, they landed on shore and skinned it rapidly for its meat and fur and grease, etc. We should recall that while the government wanted the Seminole removed to a reservation in Oklahoma, they had a perfectly good reservation in the center of Florida, and they were clearly defined boundaries to it. To put it simply, the reservations were surrounded by a federal boundary. Under the various treaties, that, like the Treaty of Moultrie Creek that established the Seminole Reservation in Florida, the federal government promised on their end of that border that they would prevent encroachments or inroads upon the border from its exterior and that the Seminoles would prevent them from the interior. In other words, both parties by that treaty were going to work together to maintain that border. The federal government had, let's say, an unrealistic expectation for how the Army should wrap up operations against the Seminole in Florida. The administration's view is that if the Army captured or exterminated every Seminole, then the war would be over. But how can the Army possibly do that with thousands of square miles of uninhabited wilderness and only a few thousand Seminoles to find? As far as the overall treaty, signed by just a handful, a number of chiefs said they were not consulted, they were not concluded, they did not sign it, and they do not agree to the treaty. In the first couple of years of the war, that seems to be a big issue. As the fighting dragged on, you contend that the Army officers on the ground in Florida actually came closer to agreeing with the seminal position. Later in the war, you read the diary of Henry Prince, for example, the 4th Infantry. You start to notice as the officers were getting used to this service in Florida, getting to know their enemy a little better, because there were periods of armistice off and on during negotiation during the whole several years of the war. Prince stops calling them Seminoles at a certain point. He refers to them as Tallahassee's or Mikasukis or Top Caligas or Chuckachattis. And so the Army officers start realizing that the U.S. government tells them, you're going to fight the Seminoles. And then the army officers start finding out when these people are obviously saying, well, I'm not a Seminole, I'm a Tallahassee, so I don't care what the Seminole guy signed. So I understand you mentioned Mr. Wiseman's point is that it sort of created a unity among them. And Sprague talks about that, that their unity was in their resistance to removal, correct. But if you read Sprague's book particularly, you'll see he's a marvelous historian for the Seminoles in the last few years of the Seminole War. And among the things he gets into are these politics where the army was taking advantage of the distinctions between these bands. At a certain point of time, late in the war, the Miccosukee band of Halak Tustanugi had offended the Tallahassees to the point where the army armed and equipped a party of 70 or 80 Tallahassee warriors at Tampa Bay to actually go back into the swamps and hunt down Halak Tustanugi at one point. Now, they recalled them because there was some intelligence that perhaps they weren't as faithful as they claimed to be in their interest in sandbagging Halak Tustanugi. It's interesting to see that these distinctions are made. Do you agree with Dr. Wiseman that the opposition to the removal forged a seminal identity that proved to be enduring from where there had been no such unified identity previously. I don't know that I entirely agree with Dr. Wiseman that it created within the Seminoles an identification that transcended their traditional familial association as members of their towns, which we would call band perhaps, like I said, Tallahassee, Miccosukee, Seminole, Uchi, etc. And that you also have the strength of their kin in that you have clans within the bands, you know, the Wind Clan and the Bear Clan, etc. From what I've read, even out west, the Seminoles continued in the function in that clan and town system, and some of the towns may have combined over time, but they evidently, the clans still exist, the clan distinctions, and many of these town distinctions exist. And I'd just like to say in, in passing that in the 1950s, when the Seminoles in Florida were finally allowed federal reservation land, there was still a division. A number of the Seminoles of Florida didn't want to integrate into the larger tribe, and they became the Miccosukee tribe which is still in Florida, and there's even a third grouping of Florida 
Indians who've chosen not to live on reservation land. What was the government's policy with regard to Indian tribes in America, and how did that differ or mirror the founders? I should point out that the United States government was acting under the auspices of the founding fathers still, that the Indians were a people not only deserving of it, but who had to be civilized, and that at some point they would be united with the American people. The plan of civilization was early put into effect among the Creeks. The United States, under Benjamin Hawkins' agent, found that was not difficult because the Creeks had a form of civilization, a confederacy of tribes with a unified council. It was very democratic, but it still was a functional system that the United States was able to deal with, and they found that it was easy to deal with them because of it. So the plan of civilization was carried out to a great degree under Hawkins with the Creeks. That wasn't always universally popular because the Red Stick faction by 1813 felt that the British were offering even more civilization, so they decided to fight against the United States. There were other issues, of course, but that was a party to it as well. The British were offering trade in contrast to what the Americans were offering, which was hard work, plowing and doing such things as that. Could we be looking at this through the wrong lens and equating political differences between bands with actual cultural differences? My point is that Americans are the ones that consider Seminoles all one people. Could our own American founding help us to better understand the distinctions among the tribes that go by the overall title Seminole? Let's look at our own 13 original colony and the 13 original state. It should be easier for us to understand this, I think, in the sense to look at our own country. We are the United States of America. We're not the United People of America. We're the United States of America. If you look at the Seminoles as the United Tribes of the Seminole, then that would probably be a better description for them as a group than the Seminole Tribes. The Seminoles were fighting to maintain not just their independence in terms of not being reintegrated into the Creek tribe in the West, but also in retaining what independent their towns and their clan system had in existence in Florida. And they were united in their resistance to the United States, which was threatening that independent among them. Much like, you know, the King of England was offending all 13 peoples of the 13 colonies who then united. And they united under flags like that showing a 13 section snake coming together to attack. Unity is strength, as it were. In the final analysis, can we blame the U.S. government for this lingering confusion about who constitutes a seminal, at least in a political sense? United States government wanted them to combine. And then in the removal years, in the 1830s, the interest of the federal government was that the Seminoles of Florida would eventually recombine into the Creek or Muscogee tribe, which they did not want to do. The goal of the United States in the 19th century was to combine all the Look at the whole point of concentrating all those tribes into the Indian territory around what's now Oklahoma. The federal government had carried out a process and it was largely successful. You'd have essentially an Indian state where in the 1880s that was altered by changes in the law and the subsequent, my understanding, eradication of the tribal boundaries in Oklahoma, but that's a separate issue. Given what you've just said, how well did we understand the Seminole at the time? Well, I don't know that we completely understand the Seminoles' culture. You can read about the comments by the Americans and Europeans, for example, traded and lived among the Creeks and even among the Seminoles. The Seminoles were very similar to the Creeks when you compare these narratives. There may have been differences that we just don't know about, but in general, even from what generalizing the Creek, we could say that they had a certain way of doing things, and you would ask yourself, well, what is the practicality of that? And it's just how they did it. It was part of being a creek at one time. Well, the Seminoles had broken away from the creeks. To what extent the Seminoles modified their modes after breaking from the creeks, I'm not in a position to say, and I don't know that it's absolutely clear. But one of the things that those generally understood, even from the 1790s, is that war fighting was all the young men of the Creek peoples were considered the warriors, and they all wanted to be notable for some incident in war. Now, among the Americans, the model would be doing something extremely brave, like Colonel Warren at Bunker Hill standing on top of the trench, some such. From Milfort's description, you'd get the impression that you could gain an equivalent notice for warfare by successfully raiding a farm or behaving gallantly in close combat. 
So between the two, if you don't need to engage in close combat, let me just put it like this. And again, I don't mean to be suggesting that the Seminoles looked at anything like what I'm saying. But imagine today you have the Combat Infantryman's Badge, which the combat riflemen in the U.S. military awarded and it's a very valued insignia uh, within the Army. But imagine you could get the Combat Infantry Badge without actually engaging in close combat with an enemy. Wouldn't it be advantageous to rather get that badge at the minimum of risk to yourself? If you could get a warrior's name by cunning instead of absolute valor in battle, then Evidently, that was an acceptable way of being seen as a successful warrior in the Creek culture is by cunning rather than pure valor. The U.S. Army had trouble determining who were friendly Seminole and who weren't, who were combatants and who weren't. And these were among Seminoles who lived among each other. The Army had to abide. Anyone that did not actively surrender and remove to the West was in violation of the treaties between the United States and the Seminole Nation and was essentially an outlaw in that capacity. But the Army, of course, understood that the whole nation was essentially under arms under their own chiefs, particularly Micanopy and others. But when some bands surrendered, like the Tallahassee, under Nathlaka Mothla and his brother Tiger Tail, Nathlaka Mothla is recorded by John T. Sprague as recalling to the army that his people had been friendly to the white and had done very little of the fighting, that they had largely hidden out. In other words, the army's definition of a friendly Seminole and the Seminole's definition of a friendly Seminole was different. Now, the Tallahassee had not gone out of their way to antagonize their fellow bands because they were part of the Seminole Nation and they did evidently participate in the councils of the nation. And that's proven in Sprague's reference that Tiger Tail, Tallahassee leader, was essentially made one of the principal war leaders of the nation after 1838. And if I recall correctly, it's ascribed to Tiger Tail the decision in a summer of 1838 that there wouldn't be any more pitched battles that the Seminole, by and large, would attempt to avoid conflict, hide from the U.S. troops, and that the Seminoles wouldn't attack any groups of whites larger than three or four, something to that effect. And that, of course, converted the war into a, a rather Fabian strategy, to use antique term, where the troops were denied combat, which was one thing that even if the battle proved essentially a reverse, like the Battle of Okeechobee, where the casualties were extraordinary for the numbers engaged, the government recognized the value of a victory even as painful as it was. And Colonel Zachary Taylor was elevated to a general, and there were other promotions that came out of it, and the chivalry of the army was upheld. But the Seminole fought very few combats like that afterwards, and generally they tried to avoid them. I doubt they were particularly concerned about what the United States Army thought about the war and its prosecution, but it certainly did prove frustrating because you now have, for the next five or so years, thousands of U.S. troops, particularly regulars, sloshing around South Florida principally, and at best burning some cornfields hidden on islands in the Everglades. This is extremely taxing warfare. And because the U.S. troops generally did not operate in the summer because of a fear of illness, this was when the Seminole would have their green corn festivals and when they would gather their crops, etc. So really no headway was being made. There's an intangible that comes with battles, and that is the individual warrior or soldier's belief that they are going to prevail. The Seminole who had influence on the warriors to believe they will prevail was the medicine man. That's our term. The Seminole might know him as a prophet. Who was the Seminole prophet? I would argue that probably the most unifying figure we can find historically among the Seminole resistors is the Creek prophet Otolki Flacco, frequently mentioned later in the war as, as being a leader, a, a significant figure among the resistors to the removed. And the prophet was influential because he prepared the medicine bundles that they used? when they went into battle? Seminoles, each warrior would have carried medicine. The Seminole tribe today, I believe, still had some of the medicine bundle from some of the, the bands that survived the Seminole War and remained in Florida, and I believe the Seminole tribe in Florida had some of those medicine bundles. Some historians and investigators in the mid-19th century, when they talked to the Seminoles and Mikasuki about these, the medicine, that there's 
their version of what it means is not dissimilar from what, say, Leclerc Milfort describes of the war medicine in the 1790s. There was medicine that would allow them to ambush their enemies successfully, would make their enemies susceptible to their gunfire, medicine to protect them from the enemy's return fire. Before the Battle of Okeechobee, December 25, 1837, Alligator, again, a principal seminal combatant in the war, he told Sprague, again published in 1848 in Sprague's book, Florida War, Origin, Progress, and Conclusion of the... He told Sprague that before the battle, the Cree prophet Pokey Flacco was making medicine and singing and dancing on the beach of the lake for the warriors to prepare them for combat. The Indians didn't necessarily view combat in the same way as the U.S. Army, and the U.S. Army looked at the purpose of combat as taking and holding ground and particularly doing it against the resistance of your enemy. In other words, there's nothing you can possess that we can't take away. (laughs) But the Seminoles would abandon the ground when their war medicine was such that would give them the power to kill a wounded enemy. Not that it didn't exist, but in the handful of white people that have commented upon the Seminole medicine bundles in the early 20th century from interviewing Seminole leaders in Florida. The medicine bundles don't necessarily reference the warriors taking the ground of the white men in the battle. Their goal was to kill, to wound. And at the same time, the medicine would protect them against the bullets of the soldiers, theoretically, which wasn't always the case. So it's a very different view of tactics. Just because the Seminoles ran away didn't mean that you made them run away. And I bring this up again because Alligator, one of the principal Seminole war leaders, when he explains the battle with Lacucci, where Clinch says that after three charges, he flogged the Indians and they fled, Alligator says, no, they fled when Osceola was wounded in the arm. Osceola being injured would have been symbolic that their war medicine wasn't working. So I would ask the question, and it's not one I can answer to, what would have demoralized the Seminoles in combat more? Evidence that the war medicine that they had received from their medicine men was not as protective as they claimed it was, or the troops themselves. And without telephone video evidence, we can't really answer these questions, can we? With the aid of the medicine bundle, the Seminoles could move into battle with confidence. What did they move into battle wearing? In the Seminoles War of 1835-42, there are several references to the Seminoles fighting practically naked, uh, maybe just wearing their loincloth and moccasins and painted red. This, this is also described by Milfort in the 1790s among the Creek. Although Milfort says it wasn't necessarily purely ceremonial, but that the Creeks had long discerned that if you were wearing dirty clothing when you suffered a bullet wound, the wound wouldn't heal, but if you had bare skin when you suffered the wound, it would heal better. And that was even American medical treatises on gunshot wounds mentioned that. When the, the bullets strike, they often would force the clothing into the wound. Since the bullets of the time being propelled by black powder, they had a relatively low muzzle velocity. There's reference to sometimes the men's shirts wouldn't even be pierced. They would actually be forced into the bullet wound, and the surgeons sometimes could just pull the shirt out and withdraw the bullet. Uh, That would be rare. Often, though, pieces of fragments of the dirty clothing forced in the wound would force infections. And in fact, one of the survivors of Major Dade's battle, Private Ransom Clark, is said to have suffered immensely from a wound in his lung. And at a certain point, he began to recover slightly after he vomited up a quantity of blood and a piece of his coat that evidently had been forced into his lungs by the bullet. The Seminoles had a combination of practical and essentially religious practices regarding battle. In battle reenactments today, how do the Seminole handle the costuming? The Seminole reenactors, they do not customarily fight stripped or painted. They wear generally the everyday or ceremonial dress of the Seminoles. I recall some years back a comment by some of the Seminole reenactors explaining to me they don't want to wear the war paint and everything because... Any real religious or cultural practice involved in it is not completely understood rather than mimicking it, they just don't do it. One is forced to take one's knowledge about Seminole battle practices and apply it to what one reads in the contemporary historical accounts of the newspapers. The difference in accuracy between the two is something to behold. 
like two sides of the mirror. In Florida, we read the contemporary when we have to recognize that everything we read in the newspapers of that era is written for a particular audience. Just like today, there was a two-party system in effect. By 1835, you have the Whigs were strong and incorporated, and then you had the Democrats, particularly the Jacksonian Democrats, but of course you had a, a wide range of political groupings in between, but revolving around those two spheres and so you'll find vast quantities of reference to the brutality of the Seminoles in Florida and the bloodthirsty savagery and, and so forth. But then in other papers, you'll find references, letters from the Indian Territory mentioning how the Methodists were helping the Shawnee learn how to plow the ground better out in the Indian Territory at the same time. So there's no reference to savagery and bloodthirstiness once they reach Louisiana or traveling on the river north. So you see a lot of that terminology had a political connotation among the white readers, American readership of the time. We can jump into the 20th century where a lot of that sort of thing was encoded into Hollywood movies by and large, with certain exceptions. Um, Perhaps we'll give Chuck Connors a pass in his portrayal of Geronimo. The Indians are generally shown as as savage. And what evidence do motion pictures generally use to convince us of that? They'll show torture. Duel at Diablo comes to mind, where some of the protagonists come upon the scenes of their friends having been tortured. Well, torture was a war method of Indian tribes. One military officer in a contemporary newspaper mentioned asking a Seminole during a period of peace in Florida, asking him why the Seminole warriors or Indian warriors generally, why didn't they take prisoners and how could they kill non-combatants so wantonly? And his description was that the warrior just looked very sad, showed some emotion on replying to him that, which suggested to him that it's not something they necessarily like to do, or at least this particular warrior wasn't enthusiastic about it. And he replied to the effect, and I am paraphrasing, of course, that the Seminole has nowhere to lay his head and he has his ways. In other words, it was just how they fought in the warfare of their culture. A warrior who enacted something notable in battle or on a raid, their names would even change. There's a blue warrior who's described by McKinney and Hall in one of their descriptions of Indian leaders. He was a Seminole leader, and he was in several battles in Florida, at Camp Monroe and later Fort Mellon site in 1837, and then he was in the Battle of Wahoo Swamp in 1836. And there's, I believe, reference that after he acquitted himself in several raids, particularly his name was altered. They gave him a different name based on these incidents of skill at warfare. So we're looking at martial arts and skill at warfare from the perspective of demonstrating skill in military tactics, in battle particularly. But the Seminole, not necessarily, there are probably many warriors that never were in a battle, but who demonstrated great skill in war through their raiding, which could be pretty brutal and violent. But we also see in many occasions where U.S. troops would surprise Seminole encampments and open fire in these blazing dawn raids. And there's at least three or four where they mentioned they killed or wounded women and children in these rapid bush battles attacking these encampments. They would do it rapidly before the Indians could slip away and casualties would be incurred. Even though the troops generally wouldn't have preferred to harm the women and children, there were several reported incidents of Seminole women getting caught in the crossfire. And of course, you have a large number of Floridians' farms being sacked and women and children being among the casualties. No one's bothered to try and calculate all these reports of the non-combatant casualties. We continuously quote Captain Sprague's compilation of nearly 1,700 regular troops that died in Florida, but there is an enormous number of Florida citizens that were killed and an unknown number of Seminole. And the Seminole weren't always picky. There's large numbers of references to Negro slaves being among the slain in some of these raids. In fact, the Florida Territory gave out legislation in 1840 that allowed slaveholders in Florida to arm their slaves for local defense, at least during the course of the Indian War. Up to that time, I don't think Florida specifically, but in the South generally, Negroes were not being considered citizens. They weren't eligible for active duty in the militia of their districts, even if they were free. However, most Southern states, either by legislation or by custom, employed 
free blacks or slaves as the musicians. By law, every militia company had to have two musicians, either a fifer and drummer or a drummer and a bugler. Frequently, they would be slaves or free blacks. In fact, in the Florida campaigns, Major Cooper's battalion of Georgians in the Battle of Fort Cooper, the muster rolls of the unit show that musicians were all evidently slaves of the officers that were employed as musicians for their companies. While the army may have employed free or enslaved blacks to fill out its ranks, on the Seminole side, the black Seminole were considered allies. However, they were still considered slaves of a type to the Seminole. This offends our modern sensibilities, of course, but we learned that the practice was somewhat widespread throughout the American Southeast, the Creeks as well. In fact, the promise of getting black slaves was an incentive for Creeks to join the army and fight the Seminole at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. Well, they were volunteers, but because they were Indians, they were not under the militia laws of the United States. The Creeks were employed for a year, and they did pretty good service, although they didn't in the war, but they didn't fight battles. Again, we come to that point about how the Indians view warfare. They viewed it differently. There's a criticism that the government offered the Creek volunteers they could keep any Negro slaves they captured. Often some historians and abolitionists at the time even brought it up to criticize the federal government, but the Creeks might have viewed that as a legitimate war measure. If you told them, we're going to pay you $6 a month for privates, we're going to send you to Florida and you're going to fight a battle where we're going to have you charge your Seminole cousins over open ground frontally while you're being shot down, they might not have volunteered. <laughs> right, but if you say you can keep any plunder and any slaves that you pick up, that's another incentive that uh, supersedes the previous lack of incentive. Right. I'm not saying that the Creeks were unique in that, but we do see that the Creeks had been at war with the Seminoles in the past, prior to the 1830s, before Florida was acquired by the United States. A, a large war party, evidently, of Coweta Creek warriors passed into East Florida and carried off a large number of Negroes back into Georgia and kept them for their own planting purposes or sold them to white people. So warfare was about plunder as much as combat for the Indians. But then again, we can also say that the same matches for white people because the whole point of the Florida War was a huge eminent domain battle over salvaging the investments already made in the territory and perchance providing incentive for more investment into the territory. Seminoles did consider the black Seminoles as their bona fide property, or at least for purposes of removal. Some white slave owners said that the Seminole were holding their slaves and they wanted them back. And some others, unscrupulous, merely claimed the Seminoles were holding their slaves so that they could get new slaves from the Seminole and make a tidy profit. There was the issue of runaway slaves among the Seminoles, but if you read Sprague's account and also that of Woodburn Potter, published time, they seem to have really excellent descriptions of the situation prior to the war. But of course, they're writing at the time. They didn't want to offend, so they didn't get into the nuts and bolts, but gives the impression, that, to me anyway, that people claiming in the court the Seminoles had their runaways were probably lying and that they just wanted to get their hands on some of the Seminoles' own Negroes by laying claim to them. But you have to watch out because you don't want to libel people. You know, Woodburn Potter published his book in 1836. Some of these court actions were still probably bouncing around in the courts over claims over some of these Seminole Negroes and who their owners were. The assumption has been that since these claims were made, that they were legitimate. There were a large number of runaways among the Seminole. But there are other, in reading this, a large body of research on the Seminoles in that period, they had purchased slaves from the British. They had received slaves as gifts from the British in the period prior to the American Revolution. The Seminoles bought slaves freely from the Spanish, etc. It was only once the United States acquired Florida, 22 too, that the Seminoles were cut off from customary trade, because under U.S. law at the time, the Indian tribes could only trade with licensed traders by the United States government. And if the U.S. government didn't want those traders to sell slaves to the Indians, then they would sell them to them. So most of the Seminole Negroes that were not runaways, not saying there were no runaways with them, but I'm just questioning whether the claims made by these persons that they had Negro property among the Seminoles, whether these were legitimate claims. And of course, it's tough because 
Seminoles, their testimony in court was immaterial. So you see where these gentlemen trying to take advantage of that fact in order to get court decisions that certain black folks living among the Seminoles were their property, and then they could claim them literally. By the Civil War, field hand as a slave could go for as much as $1,000. That was a significant amount of money. And slave prices were high in the 25, 30 years prior. So you have these persons that are looking at the black Seminoles thinking, perhaps, wow, if I just pay court costs and hire a good lawyer, I could get these people for free. I mean, practically. I'm not saying that's what happened, but look at Potter and Sprague and some of the contemporaries writing about the subject. The Seminoles, many of them felt like they were being put upon on this. They felt that some of those black Seminoles were their legitimate slaves. They had bought them fair and square and now they're being cheated out of them, etc. Interestingly, we have good documentation about the black Seminoles circumstances in that in 1838-39, General Jessup produced a roll of black Seminoles that had been taken prisoner by the army in their disposition. Many of them sent west with the Seminoles. And that roll, they recorded Seminole owner of each of the black Seminoles. And Micanope was must have certainly been the largest holder of bondsmen and women among the Seminoles. And Alligator mentions that the battle with Lacucci Evidently, two of Micanopi's Negroes were among the slain, and there's some commentary from the time that Micanopi ordered the black Seminoles not fight anymore, at least possibly referring to his own bombs, but that didn't transpire because we see at Camp Izzard, it was noticed by Henry Prince and, and others that black Seminoles in large numbers were fighting at Camp Izzard, and many of them were wearing portions of U.S. military clothing taken from Dade's command. At one point during the fighting around Camp Izzard, a party of black Seminoles got pretty close to the fortification because the troops didn't want to fire on them, seeing forage caps and military jackets and muskets and realized when they closed in that they were uh, black Seminole. What did Samson Forrester have to say about Seminole conduct in holding prisoners, if we could use that term? Samson Forrester, they didn't consider them prisoners. They weren't necessarily prisoners of war. The Seminoles employed Negroes before, during, and after the Seminole War, employed them as bondsmen. Killing seems to have been the general thing. Forrester says that a couple of soldiers were taken prisoner with him at Kosachi, and one of them was forced to do the work of the women, and then the women beat him to death with pine knots, and then I want to say they tortured the other one with burning to some degree. He can refer to Forrester's narrative in Sprague for the details. When they actually got down to fighting, the army did have an advantage in that their soldiers were armed with bayonets. Bayonet was the offensive weapon to close with the enemy. So what did the Seminoles do in reaction to that? Well, they would run away, and then when the soldiers stopped chasing them, they would reload keep shooting at them. Which makes sense. And so these battles would become interminable. Okeechobee is the exception in the sense that the troops really were determined to conclude the war. They really... Soldiers at Okeechobee, volunteers and regulars, really kind of amazes me. The more I read their account, the Missourians provided many depositions about the incidents of the battle. The force of General Taylor, the several hundred men that made that assault, suffered extraordinary casualties. Only a few hundred of those men were really seriously engaged, but they really pressed on the Seminoles hard, trying to overwhelm them. And Colonel Foster, the 4th Infantry, for one, mentions in a letter to his wife that his regiment, in one rank, one pace apart, essentially a skirmish or extended order, he ordered them to attack the Seminoles in the Cypress Swamp at a run and firing as they went as fast as they could. And once they got into the timber, the Seminoles broke to the right and left, but some of them didn't get out of the way. Foster says that his men left eight Seminole bodies in their wake as they passed through the timber to the beach at Lake Okeechobee. So there you have quite possibly the largest single incident of bloodshed in combat as far as fatalities for the Seminoles. Seven or eight Seminoles killed in that immediate vicinity of Foster's Charge where they really just couldn't get out of the way fast enough. The Seminoles didn't have bayonets for their rifles. Did they have any type of martial arts they could use? Did no, no, they didn't. I've been asked this, if the Seminoles had a sort of martial arts. Not that I can see referenced historically. Their preparation to practice for war was, according to observers, in the 1820s, the ball game. The Creeks and Seminoles both played the ball game, and it was a rough-and-tumble game. I recall one commentator, I believe a British gentleman, said that he understood their name for the ball game was something akin to the little brother of war. In the Seminoles you know, fighting, they usually practiced the ambush, and then they would rush 
to gain scalps, and the scalps were valuable to them because it demonstrated their war capability. You see, whereas in the United States, the military men were approved of publicly for powerful demonstrations of their valor in combat. The Seminoles appreciated valor as well, but it's evident by reading some of the accounts like McKinney and Hall's description of some of the Seminole warriors they knew that a great warrior wasn't necessarily a warrior that was demonstrating valor in battle. If a warrior came back from expeditions with scalps, he could be considered a great warrior, and he may not have even acquired them from soldiers or even in battle. Because Seminole warfare had its peculiarities that seemed alien and sometimes barbaric to the army and the American public, but it did have a certain logic and emotional design to it. Conversely, there were at least a few American practices that seemed alien and barbaric to Seminole eyes. One army officer asked the Seminole warrior, you know, why didn't the Seminoles take prisoners and why did they butcher those that came into their power? Why did they mutilate the bodies and scalp them? The gentleman mentioned the Seminole warrior he questioned replied to him with some emotion that the Seminole has no place to lay his head as a home and he has his own ways and has to follow them. In other words, the gentleman felt that the warrior was trying to explain to him that they didn't do it because they necessarily enjoyed it any more than an American soldier enjoyed making a frontal attack against an entrenched enemy, you see. It was just a mode of warfare that was common. I have to assume that may be correct because we see that frequently when the periods of the war concluded, there would be no harm, no foul. Many of the Seminoles captured in early 1838 were sent to New Orleans, and there's a marvelous account of a wedding party among them that was allowed to walk around the down the levee from modern Port Jackson and solicit donations of money from the locals in order to buy wedding gifts for the wedding party, and that in return for the money, the Seminoles put on a dance for the, the people that gave the money. These are warriors that had potentially months before had sacked and burned farms and done things that we would consider unconscionable, but as Indian warfare had its own peculiarity. And then again, so did American warfare, because I'm sure the Seminoles found it odd that American physicians, when they could, would remove the heads of Seminole dead for their phrenological collection. Phrenologists would call an Indian that scalped his victims a savage and while he's removing Osceola's head, perhaps, uh, for his own collection. The Seminole military ways were not not necessarily the U.S. Army's military ways. For instance, what immediate action did they take for firefights? Firefights, they would engage in them as long as they saw some advantage in it. Seminoles were not disciplined soldiers. As one officer at, with Lacucci says, they were under a, a shower of Indian bullets, but very few were actually hitting anyone. And that's probably because they were so excited they were firing wild. They were just reloading in the woods and running up. Compared to Western tribes, however, the Seminoles were quite disciplined. One officer says the Seminoles were far more disciplined than some of the Indians that he had fought in the north, in that at, with Lacucci, he saw them advance by squads or platoons is what he calls it, but small groups would reload and come up as a group and fire all at once out of the edge of the swamp. And he was really impressed even as small groups, they would work in concert in combat. And his experience fighting Western Indians had been that they were purely individualistic in combat. Of the military tactics available to them, which one did the Seminoles find most useful to achieve their ends against an adversary? The Seminoles seemed to have concentrated upon the ambush. That was the most important part of the combat for them. And then they would rush to gain scalps, and the scalps were valuable to them because it demonstrated their war capability. You see, whereas in the United States, the military men were approved of publicly for powerful demonstrations of their valor in combat. The Seminoles appreciated valor as well, but it's evident by reading some of the accounts like McKinney and Hall's description of some of the Seminole warriors they knew that a great warrior wasn't necessarily a warrior that was demonstrating valor in battle. If a warrior came back from expeditions with scalps, he could be considered a great warrior, and he may not have even acquired them from soldiers or even in battle. Seminoles had tomahawks, that's true, but most of the accounts of using them are to finish somebody off that they've already stricken down. We had the Dades battle when the war began, when the second attack of the Seminoles, once the troops had built a little triangular breastwork and raised it knee-high or so. 
Seminoles attacked again. Private Clark says they formed a perimeter around the breastwork that was essentially the range of their rifles. So you see, the Seminoles, if they could, they would make sure that they didn't allow the troops to close any closer to them than their own rifle range, where they could strike the troops, but where the inaccurate muskets would not have advantage and bayonets certainly wouldn't have any advantage. The battles only fought when the Seminoles wanted to fight, and the Seminoles were usually smart enough to position themselves in, in such a manner that the approaches to their position would be covered by a slough, a river, a swamp, something that would break up the cohesion of the attackers, prevent them from operating in concert between units, allowing the Seminoles, when they did choose to withdraw from the fight, that they could do so without any particular fear of being overtaken. And the Seminoles appear to have had a general fear of the mounted militia more than anyone else. Now, in this period, southern hunters often preferred to hunt on horseback. They would ride through the woods. There's a British gentleman named Goss. He lived in Alabama in the 1830s teaching school, and he said that he went hunting quite a few times with the locals in, in Alabama backcountry. And he noted how the sports hunters of the South, it was a dangerous thing just to hunt with them because they would ride the horses as fast as they could through the open woods and handle their gun at the same time. Sometimes to their discomfiture, they may have to dodge tree branches and everything while they're chasing down a deer in the open woods. The mounted volunteers that were brought into military service, they'd all done this so they could track Indians through the woods if they were open enough. The strategy of the Seminoles was to stay out of the Pine Barrens where they knew they could be overtaken by the mounted elements of the American forces at a disadvantage. And that's why they generally hid in the swamps, because they knew that they could at least negate the mobility of the mounted volunteer units, like the Missouri volunteers at Okeechobee. Many of those men had served honorably and with some degree of uh, skill in the Black Hawk War and the War of 1812 prior. But because the Seminoles had positioned themselves across the Sawgrass Prairie, the Missouri volunteers were unable to utilize their greatest advantage, which was their horse-borne mobility. They essentially just became riflemen stumbling through a sawgrass swamp at quarter mile an hour. Jesse, we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us once again for The Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Foundation, 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.